Anybody grumbled this week? Oh, yes. What short memories we have, right? Well, I'm here to remind you again today. Open your Bibles to the 16th chapter of the book of Exodus. We're going to look once again at a, an episode, actually the third in the series of crises that uh, the Israelites are going to face and their response or reaction to the crisis and God's grace to them. We have lots of needs as human beings. Uh, we, have, we have personal needs, we have spiritual needs, and we have physical needs. And probably one of the greatest of all of the physical needs that man has is the need for food. Uh, if we don't eat on a regular basis, uh, if we go without food, then we face starvation and even death. And uh, some of us are very, very particular in what we eat, and some of us are not so particular. Isn't that true? So what happens then when a person's food supply is threatened? What happens when you can't get to Starbucks? <laughs> what happens when you cannot get to Starbucks? Stress. Grumbling. Complaining. When the line, the drive through line, is a little too long. Complaining is a natural result when we are deprived, when we can't get to that which we, we want to, and more particularly in terms of our temporal needs. In the case of the Israelites, uh, we're going to see in this chapter the, the third crisis they face. The first one was at the Red Sea, if you recall. Uh, God had just miraculously delivered them, marvelously, powerfully, from Egypt. And uh, they'd seen the power of God via the ten plagues over a period of six, six months or so. And now they're, they're brought out and, and they're at the edge of the Red Sea. And uh, notwithstanding all that God had done for them, uh, they're feeling trapped, they're feeling threatened, and they begin to grumble. First crisis. But God delivers them through that. Miraculously so by parting the Red Sea. They get to the other side. Chapter 15 of Exodus is this great song of deliverance that they praise God for what he has done and how he has done it and why he has done it. And then there, God leads them from, from that side of the, of the Red Sea after the deliverance. He, he leads them through the desert. They're three days into the desert. And now the water runs out. Second crisis. And rather than saying, and, and rather than being full of confidence in the Lord, rather than saying, the Lord will provide, they begin again to grumble. Second crisis. God provides again for them. They, they spend nearly a month at this place called Elim. Uh, refreshment, abundant provision. And now God's going to lead them again, back out into the desert, where they face the third in the series of crisis. And uh, this third crisis results also, amazingly, uh, and, and we're observers, we're reading this in this rather compacted text, and, and, and we have to be absolutely shocked. But if we would just take a step back and look at our own lives and we see how often we grumble, and, and we of all people should know better. Is that, a, is that a fair statement? How easy it is to grumble, how easy it is to complain. And so they too, again, will, for the third time, 
complain. They will grumble against Moses and Aaron. Now the question is why? What's at the basis? What is the cause of all their grumbling? I want to submit to you that simply that they fail to trust that God will meet their need. They just have this failure again. And you and I, the same way, we experience these momentary failures in faith. We just lose track. We, we leave God out of the equation for the moment. And when we do, we lapse into unbelief. And out of our mouth, not comes praise and thanksgiving. Out of our mouth comes complaining and grumbling. We don't like this situation. Beloved, you and I should never, ever complain or fail to trust God. But the fact that we are still yet fallen, weak beings, we do. We do. And we have, as I said earlier, we have lots and lots of issues, lots and lots of needs, lots and lots of things that confront our life that threaten us. But this is why the scriptures are so important that we read them every day. We read the book of Acts. We read Luke. We read Exodus. We read uh, the Gospels. We read every day because as we read every day, we are reminded of God's faithfulness and his purpose and his provision for our life. So that when we are threatened, chances are we will say, Lord, I trust you. I trust you. And I know you'll provide. Amen? Now, it's important that we know that God loves, for, God loves us and God cares for us. How many believe that? How many, how many believe that God loves you? God cares for you. Okay, not all the hands are up, so some people are still in doubt. God loves us, doesn't he? Say that with me. God loves me. God cares for me. And God will provide for me. He's promised to care for every need that I have in every situation. Has he not? Yes, he has. If you recall, just in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells his disciples, beginning at verse 25 of Matthew chapter 6, he says, don't worry about anything. Don't be anxious. Don't be fearful. He says, you have all these needs. Your Heavenly Father knows about these needs even before you ask. He knows what he's going to do. Now, does that mean we don't ask? No. We ask, but we don't ask out of fear or anxiety. We trust him. And he says to us, he concludes that part of the, of, the, of, of the chapter in verse 33 when he says, uh, here's the priority. Keep this always in mind. Seek first what? The kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things that normally would consume your attention, your angst, would create problems for you, would result in grumbling and complaining. All these other things, he said, will be what? They'll be added to you. They'll be taken care of. Paul writes to the Philippians. Now, remember, the Philippians were uh, one of the Macedonian churches that he talks about in 2 Corinthians. These people were dirt poor. They were, they were greatly impoverished, and they, they, their great joy welled up to take this offering to support the saints in Jerusalem. But now Paul's in prison in Rome, and, and these, these same believers in, in, in Philippi have taken up this sacrificial offering to send to support Paul in prison. And he writes back to them in the fourth chapter, verse 19, to assure them that though they have given sacrificially out of their overwhelming poverty, he says, just to encourage you, please don't forget, my God shall meet all your needs according to his riches. And is he rich? 
Yes, according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And so again, this encouragement that God indeed knows, knows what our needs are, and he has promised to meet every need. And he meets them not according to our will, he meets them according to his will. All right? Now, let's look at just the first three verses of chapter 16. The whole Israelite community set out from Elim and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai. So they're on the way to Mount Sinai for that appointment with God. On the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt, in the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt... There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Can you imagine that, Moses? You brought them all the way out there to kill them. It's been a month. It's been one month since they've come out of Egypt. How quickly they have forgotten the grace, the power the provision, the goodness of God. Just one month earlier, you recall, God had miraculously delivered them through the Red Sea. Only three days after that, he had provided for them at Mara and then Elim, a month. Note, please, what the people do as they have forgotten God's grace. They grumbled against Moses and Aaron. Why? Because they were hungry. They had apparently used up whatever food resources they had taken with them. They're out of food. A crisis existed. And the situation looked hopeless. Hopeless. Where in the desert would two million people find enough food to keep them alive? It's a difficult situation, admittedly. Such an enormous food source just did not exist, not in the wilderness of the desert. And the people knew this. And obviously, because they knew this, talk began amongst the the people. And talk begins. And once talk begins, you can't stop it, can you? The talk begins to become murmuring. And then the murmuring goes to grumbling, especially when there is no relief in sight. So they're talking, they're murmuring, they're complaining, is they're grumbling against their leaders, Moses and Aaron. I submit to you this they should not have done. They should not have done this. Why? Because they had already experienced on, on previous occasions incredible, miraculous blessings by God. But nonetheless, this is where we are. They're grumbling. In doing so, they once again demonstrate their lapse of faith. They Once again, they demonstrate their unbelief. Their unbelief. What should they have done, do you suppose? What should they have done? Well, they, I mean, in, in facing the, the lack of food, they know they're in the desert, food's run out, no one has food, or very little of it. Given their history, this, just the, for the month, 
you would think at least one person in the crowd would say, don't worry. God is going to provide. And you would think that the word would begin to spread throughout the crowd. Yes, God's going to provide. God's going to provide. God's going to provide. And a swelling chorus. And the people would fall on their faces in the desert. God, you will provide. Show Moses and Aaron where the food is. Wouldn't that have been wonderful? That doesn't happen, unfortunately. Notice the extent of their unbelief. Verse 3. The extent of their unbelief. They exaggerate. You say, how do they exaggerate? They're looking back to the good old days. Anybody look back to the good old days? You're in a rough place, right? Rough place. And you always look back to the good old days as if the good old days were not rough. It seemed so much easier back then. So much simpler. It's just as complex. If not more. So they, they look back to the good old days. And they say, we had so much food. We sat around pots of meat. Excuse me, you were slaves. <laughs> Plenty of meat and food are never, ever, ever part of the diet of slaves or of the poor of any society. And yet they're living as if that was the reality the Israelites had short memories and warped perspectives. That's sometimes what these crises can do to us. They can have an effect to warp our perspectives if we're not contextualizing them in an environment of faith and confidence in God. You begin to panic. You begin to imagine all sorts of things that are not and were not really true and accurate. They had forgotten their days of affliction in Egypt. And all they think, well, it was great. We had pots of food. Wait a minute. This great crisis that they're facing now, they're facing starvation. They're actually thinking starvation. This is a real thing for them. And a sense of hopelessness grips them. I love what the Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 1, verse 21. This is a verse that is, is, has, has, has so encouraged me down through the years. And uh, you've heard me talk about this before, and I just keep rehearsing it and rehearsing because it's such a powerful verse, because it contains such a powerful truth. Paul writes, and he writes as a generalization, but he's talking about people in, in the context of Romans 1. But this could apply here, it could apply to people today. Although they knew God. Now, there are all sorts of people, and people certainly in church today, who profess to know God. But although they know God, they don't what? There's two things they don't do. What are the two things they don't do? Glorify him and give him thanks. In other words, they, they don't acknowledge him. They don't acknowledge his grace, his power, his favor in their life. They, they just don't glorify him and they don't give him thanks. And because they don't do those things, just as much as the Israelites have not done, they've forgotten. Now, the consequence is that their thinking becomes what? Futile. 
futile. It's speculative now. They're just, they're just they're starting to freak out. Losing perspective. And when you do that and you lose perspective, now uh, your, a, a sense of hopelessness begins to grip your life. You, you begin, your, 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 think, your, your, your hearts grow, grow dark. I have no hope. This is what happens to people when we, when we lose sight of God's faithfulness and we cease to trust in him. Beloved, when a genuine believer faces a crisis, that believer must call upon the Lord. That believer must call upon the Lord, not grumble, not complain, and certainly not succumb to a sense of hopelessness. I call upon the Lord. Well, I call upon the Lord. He didn't do anything. Call upon him. I don't care if, you, if you're, the perception is he does something or not. You call upon him. You acknowledge him because your hope is in him. And he has promised to do what he wants to do, what he wills to do in your life, even if it's not what you want him to do. You still call upon the Lord. Because the alternative is to flop around in hopelessness. The, the alternative is you're left to your own devices. Call upon the Lord. In facing problems, in facing trials, difficulties, crises in our life, believe that He cares. God, I believe that you care. I believe that you love me. I believe that you will help me through this problem, no matter how severe the problem may be. I believe in you, and I'm going to stand on that. I am not going to give way to fear and hopelessness. Am I making sense? Yeah. Psalm 28, verse 7. The Lord is my strength and my shield. Say this with me. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in Him, and I am what? I'm helped. My heart leaps for joy. I will give thanks to him in song. Well, if you memorize, there's no other verse in the Bible. Memorize that one. <laughs> Psalm 40, verse 17. How many would admit to this? I am poor and needy. May the Lord think of me. You are my help and my deliverer. Oh, my God, do not delay. God's never late. Psalm 46, verse 1, He is an ever-present help in trouble. Now, either I believe that or I don't. If I believe it, I have hope. If I don't believe it, I am without hope. Isaiah chapter 41, verse 10, So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, and I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. My, oh my, <laughs> Thank you. God, you are just faithful. I trust that. I trust your word. I trust what you say. Beloved, if we don't, we will never, ever experience his, his, his right hand in that sense. Now, in verses 4 through 15, the next section, I'm going to divide this into, into several sections here. In face of the grumbling and the complaining on the part of the Israelites, notice, please, God's response. He promised to provide for them food. He's promised to provide uh, quail at night, meat 
and then bread in the morning. The only conceivable way two million people could be fed out in the wilderness of a desert and fed for 40 years would be a miracle from God. That's the only way this is going to happen. And this was exactly what God promised, to feed his people himself in such a way that the, his existence, his love, his care could never be questioned or doubted. God is going to do something here that is just going to absolutely, indisputably settle the issue of his existence, his love, and his care for his people. Verse 4 tells us, however, that God is going to test his people. He's going to test their faith in two ways. So read with me from verse 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, In the evening you, uh, you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, and in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we that you should grumble against us? Moses also said, You will know that it was the Lord when he gives you meat to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? You are grumbling you are not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. And then Moses told Aaron, Say to the entire Israelite community, Come before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. While Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked toward the desert, and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them, At twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will be filled with bread then you will know that I am the Lord your God. That evening quail came and covered the camp, and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. And when the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, What is it? For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, It is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. Now I want you to look with me at the, at the way God is going to test the faith of his people. He does so in two ways. First, by charging them to gather each day. They're to gather each day one day's supply of bread, no more and no less. Now, by laying down this restriction, God tested their trust in him. Would they, in fact, trust God day by day for their food? Jesus taught us to pray, Give us this day our daily bread. Jeremiah says in the book of Lamentations that the Lord's mercies are new, what? Every morning. He says, don't be anxious about tomorrow. Today is enough cares of its own. Take care of today. You take care of today, tomorrow we'll deal with. So God wants us to live, in effect, one day at a time. Not be anxious about the future. He'll provide one day at a time. We can trust him. The question is, Will we trust him? The second uh, aspect of this test, he commands them that they gather twice as much food on the sixth day. For the seventh day, there'll be no food available on the ground. And again, 
this would be a test of their obedience. Would they gather twice as much as commanded and rest on the seventh day, or would they go out and work to gather more food on the seventh day? So those two tests are essential now. God's going to test his people, and he's, he's going to provide for them, but he's going to use his provision as a basis to test their faith and to grow them up. The testing is not because God is mean. You know, we go to school and, and our teacher's going to test us. We oh, you're so mean. No, it's for our good that we be tested, right? So God's growing up his people. He's strengthening them in their faith. He's teaching them step by step by step to trust in him. Now, verses 6 and 7, uh, just quickly, God would prove himself to his word that he was truly the Lord because the people had grumbled against him. He's gonna, they grumble against him. He says, all right, I'm going to demonstrate again for you that I am the Lord, that I am your God, you can trust in me. Verse 8 tells us that the people's grumbling was not against God's servants, but rather their grumbling was against whom? God himself. God himself. When you and I grumble, we grumble against our circumstances. We grumble against people who are mean to us. We grumble, we're grumbling against who? God. Do you think that's important to bear in mind? Yeah, we're, we're grumbling against God. Who of all people we should never ever grumble against because he is so good to us. Remember, it was God who delivered his people from slavery. It was God who led them uh, to begin this march to the promised land. Not Moses and Aaron. This was God's doing. It was God in his sovereign leadership who led the Israelites to where they were. Not Moses and Aaron. It's God in his sovereign will and leadership and purpose who brings us to the places we are. Even in the midst of our own foolishness and our own sinful choices, God brings us to these places. We acknowledge him. How that works, I don't know, but we do. So therefore, their complaint, and by extension, our complaints, though spoken against Moses and Aaron, were really against God and his leadership. Complaining and grumbling, again, simply show distrust in God. You can say, all day long, I trust God. But if you're grumbling and complaining, you, your words are just, just noises. You don't really trust him. You can dispute that all day long, but your attitude and your behavior demonstrate that you don't really trust him. You do not really believe that God cares for you and that God will, in fact, work things out for your good. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 10 through 12, Paul writes to the Corinthians and he says, he reminds them and us that they, all these events in the Old Testament were written as examples for us that we might learn. We might look back and say, oh, I see, oh, I see. So we might learn so that we don't, what, repeat the same kinds of problems. He says, and don't grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us. So we look at this and we say, oh, oh, I see. Thank you, God, for teaching me. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 14, Paul again writing, he says, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, 
He had great confidence. In fact, the Philippians were amongst his favorite churches of all the churches he established. And he says, you know, you, I don't have to keep watch over you because I know that you'll obey in my absence. I know that you'll, you'll do what's right. He says, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, they were facing terrific obstacles. These people were facing terrific problems. And they were working out that salvation. They were living out their faith in the face of terrific difficulties. This is what gave him such great joy for them. He says, why? Now, he says, remember, God is at work in you so that you can will and do what his good pleasure is. God's at work in you. Don't lose sight of that. And then verse 14, he says, do everything without complaining, arguing. And if you, as you continue to read down the passage, he talks about us being bright lights, stars to the rest of the world that people could see by how we live, that we trust God and God provides grace for us. In verses 9 and 10 of our text, God laid down a, pre- a prerequisite for receiving the bread. This is interesting. He lays down, it's a subtle thing, you might miss it, I just want to point it out to you. A prerequisite, look at verse 9 and and tell me if you can pick up the prerequisite for receiving the bread. In other words, something has to happen before God's going to lay the bread down. What is it? What is it? Yeah, come near. Come near to him. Draw near. It was draw near. The idea idea of drawing near is the idea of acknowledge him. Come, Come to him. Don't stay off at a distance. Don't grumble. Don't, don't continue to function in unbelief. Draw near to him. Quit complaining. Confess. Repent of your complaining and your grumbling. We're told in verse 10, the people obeyed. They drew near to the Lord. And when they did, he revealed, God revealed his glory to them in that pillar of cloud. What a sight. The whole... The whole assembly of Israel, two million people, saw the glory of the Lord right there in the desert. If only we would draw near to him. If only we would draw near to him. Listen to the writer to the Hebrews in chapter 10, verse 22. He says, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. Golly. Full assurance of faith. He tells us elsewhere in the book of Hebrews that we can come with confidence to the throne of grace and we can obtain grace and mercy in our time of need. Either we believe that or we don't. In James chapter 4, verse 8, same thing. James writes, come near to God and he will come near to you. Now, verses 11 and 12 of our passage, God restates that he heard the people's grumbling and he would meet their needs. He's not going to punish them. He's not going to be punitive here. He is going to meet their needs. But he wanted the people to learn the truth. The truth simply that he is the Lord their God, that he and he alone was to be their God. He was to be the Lord of their lives. This is what God wants them to come to grips with. Verses 13 through 15, he fulfills his promise. He gave the meat that he promised. Quail. Quail came and covered the camp that very evening. I don't know if we have any hunters here that hunted for quail. Quail easy to catch? Huh? 
They're easy to catch. You can just, they just come and land on your hand. I don't know. I, I don't, I'm not a hunter, so I don't know. Quail. Someone told me that quail are not the easiest game bird to, 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 to get. You've got to have a, a good aim and a good shotgun, right? Is that true? Bob, you were telling me, weren't you? Yeah? Quail? Imagine that. Just imagine. Just imagine. How many quail do you think landed in their camp? Enough to feed how many people? Two million people. That's quite a bit of quail. Quite a bit of quail. And, and this happened every night for 40 years. Not only that, every place Israel camped, the quail knew exactly where to go. <laughs> Homing quail. I mean, you have, to, you have to appreciate this. This is incredible. This was beyond all question a spectacular miracle of God just to get the quail two million, to feed two million people every day for 40 years and the quail always landed right where the Israelites camped. You just have to go, oh, wow. And then secondly, God gives them bread just like he promised. The manna from heaven. The next morning, dew is on the ground after the dew disappears. We're told the ground was covered with thin flakes that looked like frost. And the people called it, what is it? They said, what is it? If you don't know, look in the margin, look in the footnote of your Bible. What is it? It's translated roughly uh, by the word manna. Okay? So that's where the name manna came from. They went around and said, manna. Manna. What is it? What is it? That's what they said. That's where it got its name. God's very functional. Moses told them, this is the bread that God promised from heaven. Oh, okay. How simple. Didn't look very spectacular, does it? Sometimes God's provision doesn't look very spectacular. But nonetheless, it's spectacular. Do you know that we're hungry for all kinds of things? you know that? We're hungry for all kinds of things. But I want to suggest that lying at the very base of our hunger are deeper cravings, longings. They're intangible. And the world offers us all sorts of tangible kinds of things to meet these intangible longings. How many have a a hunger, a longing for purpose in their life? You want your life to count. How many want to live a, a life that's fulfilling? To say, you know, I, 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 I want my life to have meaning and purpose and fulfillment. How many, how many have, a, have a hunger to be accepted? Oh, not everybody. I'm sorry. <laughs> Your favorite thing is rejection. <laughs> how about recognition? How many want to be recognized? I mean, just you walk in the room. You want someone to notice you're there. Especially your kids or your parents. You want to be invisible, right? No. See, these are very real human desires and hungers and needs in our life. Uh, How many have a need to be loved? (coughs) To have a friendship. I have a friend. A friend who sticks closer than a brother. How about joy? Anybody want to feel joy? 
I read a, a little short article. I, I read Guidepost magazine. It's a great bathroom reading, if you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I read this little article about this guy who, uh, who was depressed and depressive and his whole life. He never experienced joy, and he, he, he didn't know what it was like. And, and so he was always uh, looking for excitement to, to, to give his life some spice and, and so forth. And so he, he, he discovered... Um, uh, he, he became a, a U.S. Uh, gold medal Olympic champion at this sport called skeleton. Now, you may not have heard of it, but skeleton is, you know, you know, like the bobsled and the luge, you know, we know about those things, and they come down these crazy runs, and they go really, really fast. This, the skeleton is a little sled about the size of a laptop computer. And you, you lay on it, and you go 80 miles an hour. That gets your blood turning, won't it? Well, he discovered this, and he just, in just a few short years, he became uh, an Olympic champion, gold medalist for, for America. But he said when he was standing on the, on the stand to get his medal, he said, ho-hum, so what? Big deal. It was in the rush of the moment he had some exhilaration, but he had no joy. He had no genuine pleasure. He said the, he, he, he looked in the world, and the world offered him all sorts of things, and, and the world offers us all sorts of things. We feel like there's going to be real pleasure and real fulfillment and real joy if we take drugs, or at least there'll be the absence of misery if we get loaded. The world offers us pleasure, as if pleasure in and of itself was the end some people seek fulfillment in illicit sex, uh, pornography, uh, internet. Pro- I, I suspect that there are a number of people here this morning that your, your secret sin, among others, may be that you're involved in internet pornography. It's widespread in the church, and so I don't see any reason why our church is exempt from that. But there's a certain stimulation there, there's a, a certain fulfillment, but it's illusory, it's empty. And that's what drives a person back again and again and again because it never really does satisfy. Success, position, honor, we strive after these things as if they are ends in themselves to meet these deeper needs that we cannot meet by ourselves. Money, popularity, power, control. Anybody into control issues? I've got to be in control. But tragically, these things never do satisfy. They never, ever, ever fill the deepest recesses of our hearts. The offerings of the world, beloved, leave us with a sense of empty gratification. There is only one way. There is only one way a man's hunger can be satisfied. He must take the bread of heaven. The Lord Jesus Christ himself. Only Jesus can fully satisfy the hunger of the human heart. If you have not experienced the reality of this, you can ask Jesus to come into your life today because he will satisfy that. You say, but I've accepted Jesus and I'm still, I'm still frustrated, I'm still empty. You may consider, did you really receive him? Because he says he will satisfy. He will 
He is the bread given by God to satisfy the hunger of man's soul. Just as that bread from heaven was given to satisfy the hunger and the appetite of those Israelites, Jesus is the manna from heaven. He speaks of himself as such in John chapter 6, if you'll note with me, verses 32 and 33. I tell you the truth, he says, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. The bread of God is Jesus Christ. Verse 35 of John chapter 6, he says the same thing. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never grow hungry. He will have his appetites satiated. In verses 48 through 51 of John chapter 6, I am the bread of life. Your, father, your forefathers ate the manna in the desert, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If a man eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Jesus is the bread of life. He is the manna of life. This is the lesson, one of the significant lessons that we draw out of these passages. In verses 16 through 30 of our text, the people fail the test. God's going to test them, they fail the test. They disobey God. God gives them three distinct commands. The first command in verses 16 through 18. This is what the Lord has commanded. Each one is to gather as much as he needs. Take an omer for each person you have in your tent. An omer was, a, was a, a, a unit of measure. The Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some little. And when they measured it by the omer, he who gathered much did not have too much. He who gathered little did not have too little. Each one gathered as much as he needed. And so the first command, they all obeyed God. The second command is in verses 19 through 21. This is the command that was disobeyed. Then Moses said to them, No one is to keep any of it until morning. However, some of them paid no attention to their pastor. <laughs> Could you see me laying in the bushes on that one? They, paid, they just blew Moses off. They kept part of it until morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell, so Moses was angry with them. Each morning, everyone gathered as much as he needed, and when the sun grew hot, it melted away. So the second command was disobeyed. The manna was not to be kept overnight. Why was the manna not to be kept overnight? This was the test of God. Why was the manna not to be kept overnight? They were to trust God every day, right? So this is one of the ways that God is going to expose the selfishness and the carnality of the human heart. This is a way God was going to teach his people that they must trust him day by day for the provisions of life. We've got to trust him. They were being asked, in effect, to go to bed at night with not one morsel of food in the cupboard of their tent. And they were to trust God totally for their daily bread. They were to go to bed at night and rest. Go to bed at night, not be anxious about tomorrow. Go to bed at night knowing confidently that God would provide. Does that, does that ring a familiar note in anybody's hearts? I'm going to go to bed tonight. I am not going to worry about tomorrow. 
I'm just not going to worry about it. Why? Because I know God has tomorrow in complete control, and whatever I need, he's going to provide. Why do I have to spend all night awake worrying when he's going to be up all night anyway? <laughs> preparing my tomorrow. For 40 years. 40 years. Beloved, this is exactly what we should do. Trust him day by day, every day of our lives. Now, what did the Israelites do? Well, some of them disobeyed God. Some of them just simply disobeyed God. They kept a portion of the manna overnight. They were not quite sure that God had, in fact, provided the manna in the first place, and there would be manna available in the morning. So, I'm just going to hold back some. Hmm. Does that sound vaguely familiar? I'm just going to hold back some. Just in case. Just in, I'm going to hedge my bet. They just didn't trust God. They just didn't trust God. That he would continue to meet their needs, so they acted selfishly, coveting and hoarding the manna. Oh, it's my stash. You can't have any of my stash. Because if I give you my stash, there won't be any left over for moi. Now note what happened. Their stash the next morning was full of maggots and it stank. Don't you love that? I, I just... It stank. They opened the lid and go, ooh, man, that stinks. It was unfit to eat when the disbelievers arose the next morning. Verse 20 says that Moses was justifiably angry with them. <laughs> what parent isn't justifiably angry with their children when they give their children instructions and the children don't trust their parents and disobey their parents, and the parent goes, I am not happy, can you tell? Verse 20, again, Moses is justifiably angry with the people, but God demonstrated his mercy. Verse 21, his continued grace to them, he provided, again, manna for them. Each morning the people gathered just as much as they needed. Two important lessons can be learned from this. The first lesson, trust God every day for your life. Trust God every day for the provisions of your life. Now, does that mean you shouldn't have a savings account? No. Does that mean you shouldn't be prudent? No. Does that mean you shouldn't plan it? No. But it means that you don't anxious and fearful over it. You don't grow hopeless. You trust God. God, I trust you. I trust you. Now, that frees you up to be more generous. That frees you up to be more generous with your time, your energy, your resources. It requires you to be more disciplined, true, doesn't it? Now, this doesn't mean trusting him now and then. This doesn't mean trusting him here and there for a while, as we may wish. It means trusting him always, every moment of every day. Proverbs 3, 4, and 5. Trust in the Lord with what? All your heart. That means all the time. That means every day. Trust him. Trust in him. 
Trust him with all your heart and don't lean on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him. And he will make your path straight. You can take that to the bank. You can take that to the bank. The second lesson that we learned from this section, and I think this is instructive, when did the Israelites gather the manna? Very early in the morning. Every day they gathered the manna of God, the bread from heaven. Now, I don't know about you, but when I was growing up, my mother always taught me, she says, if you're going to be physically healthy and strong and you're going to be able to make it through the day, you must eat a what? Healthy, good breakfast. Right? Did your mother ever tell you that? How many mothers tell their kids that? Eat a good breakfast. I don't care if you don't eat the rest of the day. Eat a good breakfast. Breakfast means break fast. We break the fast of the night. We have a good breakfast. The same is true spiritually. To to stay spiritually healthy, we must seek the spiritual nourishment necessary to strengthen and carry us through the day. Eat a spiritual breakfast. The idea is to rise early enough every day to spend time with who? Jesus, that's right. Nearly every morning I rise early. I roll right out of my bed onto my knees. I spend time with him every morning. I talk to him. I'm quiet so I can listen for him. Spend time in his word. Devotions, fellowship, thanking him, thanking him, praising him going over my, the, the day that I anticipate having, asking for wisdom, spiritual insight, knowledge of his will, favor where I need favor, pray for people that I know, pray for the church, pray for you guys, the staff, and so forth. Partaking of him for spiritual nourishment that will last me all day. Once the sun rises, we're told in verse 21, the manna melts. What a marvelous picture there. The activities of the world begin, in essence, when the sun rises. Isn't that true? And the hope of having time then to gather the manna of spiritual nourishment grows slim. The suggestion of God's word, I think, is strong that we should rise early before the activities of the day crowd in upon us so that we can indeed gather the manna of spiritual nourishment. Even if it's 10 minutes early, set your alarm 10 minutes earlier. You say, well, I already get up at 5, I already get up at 4.30. Well, get up 10 minutes earlier. Oh! No wonder your life is in a mess. We have ample precedent for this. Jacob, if you go back into the book of Genesis, Jacob in chapter 28, Jacob, we're told in verse 18, rose early in the morning to worship and to pray. Samuel's parents. In 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 19, they arose early in the morning to worship and pray. Hezekiah, king of Judah. 
Second Chronicles 29.20 arose early in the morning to worship and pray. Job, chapter 1, verse 5. Job arose early in the morning to worship and pray. David, in Psalm 57, verse 8, arose early in the morning to worship and pray. Psalm 119, verse 147. The psalmist, listen to this. I rise before dawn and cry for help. I have put my hope in your word. Arise before dawn. Jesus, Mark chapter 1, verse 35. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. I found an obscure verse. This is marvelous. Isaiah chapter 50, verse 4. And it's amazing when you use your concordance, the verses you find. Isaiah chapter 50, verse 4, predicted that Jesus would be awakened morning by morning to listen to his Father's instructions. You suppose there were mornings when Jesus didn't want to get out of bed? I think so. Remember, he's tempted at every point just like we are, yet without sin. Though he didn't want to get out of bed, I'm sure he got out of bed. Why? His Father was awakening him to tell him, this is what we're doing today, son. Powerful. The sovereign Lord has given me an instructed tongue. I know what to say. To know the word that sustains the weary. He awakens me morning by morning, wakens me, awakens my ear to listen like one being taught. Wow. Now the third command, there's a third command of God, verses 22 to 27. That also was disobeyed by some. Again, two lessons can be drawn from this. First lesson is obey God. Deuteronomy chapter 26 and verse 16. Very simple. The Lord your God commands you this day to follow these decrees, laws, observe carefully, uh, observe them in your heart, with all your heart, with all your soul. Obey God. It doesn't really get much more complicated than that. Obey God. 1 Samuel chapter 15 verse 22. Same thing, just a different perspective. Samuel replied, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. To heed is better than the fat of rams. Obey God. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who what? Obeys God. John 14, 23. Jesus replied, if anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. It's simple. Obey God. The second lesson we draw is about the Sabbath. We must set aside one day a week, one day a week, to rest and to worship. God is very serious about this. If the Israelites did not observe the Sabbath, it was a capital crime. He would kill them. This is how serious God is about the Sabbath. Exodus chapter 20, verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Holy means set apart. The Sabbath is not like all the other days. It's a different day. It's a day to pray and play. Say that with me. The Sabbath is a day to pray and play. You say, where do you get play from? Play is another form of resting. It's a change. It's a difference from your labors. I'm playing. And when you play, you get rested, don't you? 
change of pace. It's a day to pray and play. Exodus 34, 21. Six days you shall labor, but on the seventh day you shall what? Rest. Even during the plowing season and the harvest, you must rest. In other words, when the crops have to come in, when the, when the business has to be done, when, the, when the, the people are screaming for your attention, no, this is my Sabbath. This is my Sabbath. I take a Sabbath on Monday. Monday's my Sabbath, my day to play and play and, and pray and rest. I don't do anything on Mondays except spend time with the Lord, with my family, resting. It's sacrosanct. Nothing, nothing touches money. Nothing infringes on my Mondays. You see me at Costco, I'm not shaved. I'm incognito. I'm resting. Isaiah chapter 50. Isaiah chapter 58, verses 13 and 14. If you keep your feet from breaking the Sabbath and from doing as you please on my holy day, if you call the Sabbath a delight and the Lord's holy day honorable, if you honor it not by going your own way and not doing as you please or speaking, I Lord, you see, God, God says this day is a special day. Mark chapter 2, verse 27. We can get legalistic about the Sabbath, and here's where Jesus brings us up short, those of us who would be legalistic. He says, he says, man wasn't made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man. Why? It's a day to rest. What happens when you don't, when you don't get enough sleep? Your life begins to unravel. You've got to rest at night. And the same thing at the end of the week. You've got to, or the beginning of the week, if you will, however you look at it. You've got to have a day where you just kick back and rest. The last section, verses 31 through 36, very simply we just summarize. God commanded that the man be memorialized as a testimony to the future generations of God's faithfulness. Nobody told, he tells Moses and Aaron, take some of the manna, put it in a jar, and, and, and put it away. This is going to be for all the future generations, and that, that jar of manna would be put into the ark. We don't have the ark today, we don't have the manna today, we don't know where it's gone. It's got lost. But in the very same way that he told the people to memorialize God's faithfulness by putting away some of that manna, he tells us to memorialize his faithfulness to us. We do so first at the communion table, do we not? We come to the table. We remember him. We memorialize God's faithfulness through the death of Christ so that you and I might have life. We may not die eternally in hell. But there's also a second way, and that's as we live. We are living testimonies. We are living witnesses of the faithfulness of God. People look at our lives, as Paul writes in that second chapter of Philippians, they look at our lives and they, they see that we are different people. How we live is a memorial of God's faithfulness. The fact that we resist the temptation to grumble, the fact that we resist the temptation to complain, the fact that we say, Lord, I trust you. Your grace is sufficient. Your grace is sufficient. I trust in your grace. And lastly, two important lessons can be drawn from the manna. The manna, the bread given by God to save Israel from physical starvation and death, points to Jesus. Obviously, the bread of life, the bread from God given to man to save us from spiritual death. It's a tremendous picture. We see Jesus all throughout the Old Testament. We see him in this section through the manna. 
It was a picture of the Lord Jesus himself. And again, Jesus uses the manna, and he, he points to himself. Listen to the claims he makes. In John chapter 6, again, verse 32, he says that he was the true bread from heaven. In verse 33, that he is the bread of God who came down from heaven. In verse 48, that he is the bread of life. In verse 51, that he is the living bread which came down from heaven. In verse 58, that whoever partook of him as the bread of life would live forever. In verse 35, whoever came to him would never hunger. You come to Jesus, really. You come to him, really. You will never hunger. That's what he says. You will be tested. You will be tried. There will be problems. There will be difficulties. There will be crises in your life. But you always look to him, and he will meet every need. And secondly, the manna was sent by God, but the people had to gather it. The people had to gather it. And just like that manna sent by God, Jesus sent by God, we must receive him. There's a part that you play. I receive him. John chapter 1, verse 12, Jesus says it this way, or John writes this, he says, to all who received him, To those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Have you received Christ into your life? Have you taken him in just like you would take in bread to nourish you? John 3.16, God so loved you that he gave his one and only son that if you would only believe in him, you would have eternal life. You would not perish. And lastly, Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. Great verse. Here I am, he says, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. We will have fellowship together. Open your heart. Open the door. Father, thank you for your word to us. Thank you for the manna, but more particularly the spiritual manna from heaven that is Jesus Lord, this is not a myth. This is the absolute truth. You've written these things so we might learn, we might trust you. In the midst of all of our lives and all of the things that confront us and the things that can scare us and create anxiety, Lord, in the face of all those, we look to you, we trust you. We know, Lord, that your grace will be with us and your grace will be sufficient. We shall not be afraid, we shall not be hopeless, but rather we praise you and we thank you. Thank you, Lord. We love you this morning. Keep your heads bowed for just a couple more moments. I want to ask the elders and the pastors if you'll come down to the front, please. Some of you here need to make a decision. God has spoken to your heart today in some manner, some fashion. And you need to make a decision, but you need to tell somebody about that decision. The Bible says to confess to one another. So I'm going to give you an opportunity, just a few minutes, and then we're going to close the service to come down here to front. Maybe you're going to receive Christ for the first time. Maybe you're going to say, you know what, I need to go and I need to tell somebody I've been grumbling and complaining and I'm going to stop it. Maybe I'm mad at God. Maybe he hasn't done what I think he should do. Maybe I need to get my attitude right. I need to go confess that to somebody. Maybe your marriage isn't what it ought to be and you know it and you haven't done your part. Maybe there's rebellion and sin in your heart. 
Maybe you need to come and confess it and repent. Whatever the issue is, come now. Come now. Don't delay. Church, pray. Pray. Come now. Don't let your pride trip you up.